This is the Cashflow Digest. My name is Matt Faircloth and me and the DeRosa team are here for you guys on a weekly basis video and broadcast recording. This is also live on our Facebook group, DeRosa Insiders. We're going to be talking about all things real estate and all things cash flow because our company is dedicated to transforming lives through real estate and cash flow can do that. We're going to be talking about things that are affecting the real estate industry, news in the real estate investing world. And we're also going to be bringing on guests that are crushing it in the cash flow sector of real estate investing. If you guys want to join and watch the show live, please go to Facebook and look up DeRosa Insiders and join that Facebook group where we record this show every Friday at noon Eastern. Hope to see you guys there. What's going on, everyone? Vinny Celeste here. We're going live to another Cash Flow Digest episode Friday. Justin, thanks very much for joining us. I'm so excited to be here, Vin. Thanks for having me, man. Asset management takeover. Let's go. Yeah, I love it. Anytime Matt goes away, I kind of I get to to think about what we're gonna do to to turn things over here. And thanks for stepping in. We got a really good show plan. So happy to be here. Happy to do it. So you can you can even call me when Matt's still here every now and then. I'll be okay. I'll come in. The three that that would break the internet. Three people on on the screen here. So guys, we have a really great show planned here. It is a live show, so let's highlight what we're here to talk about. So we've got some really interesting news and reports from a company called Yardi. They, they have access to data really across, across the nation of, of multifamily data, really tracking some interesting stuff there. So Justin and I are going to dive into all that, what trends we're seeing in rent growth across different markets. Then we're going to just get to talk a little bit about asset management, the way we run things and, and why, right? The why behind all of it. We've got some, an interesting tip here from our expert asset manager, Tara Smiley. And we'll cut things loose. But like I said, keep the questions flowing and we'll get into it. Scouring the internet this week, we saw an interesting headline. It was pointing to year over year rent growth, right? It's so important to understand your market and what rent growth is going to do because when you're projecting out your performa and really exit rates and that sort of stuff, it's important to, to know what your cash flow is going to be out. So there's been a time where people were able to project out rent growth 5% year over year. And gosh, this. This data will show you that's a risky, risky method to underwrite now by 5% year over year rent growth, especially in your first year of ownership and that sort of thing, right? So always interesting data coming out of this, but what it highlighted was a 0.4% increase year over year rent growth across the nation. I'm going to show you in a minute here a, a more detailed view as we look into the different markets and metros, but you're going to see how 0.4% doesn't tell the, 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 the full story, that it's really, it's a, a story that needs to be understood about your market and in your region. So we're going to get into it, but Justin, first, what do you think about all this, right? This chart that the shape of it. Natural rent growth, we'll call it market rent growth. We're not counting on it. It's gone away. You can see there that chart. And I guess I, I'd love if they went back one more year, but October 20 of 2020 through 2020 through 2021 into 2020, early 20, that was, as we all know, prime COVID time. And what was happening in COVID time was we had an eviction moratorium, but rents just, just piled up on top of each other. We could not raise rents fast enough during COVID, we were putting out quality product. Rents were really ballooning to the point that we were talking about, well, this market grew 15% this year and this market grew 20% this year. And we heard kind of crazy numbers like that. People got excited and they started forecasting and projecting and everything. Thankfully, we're not the kind of company that thinks that that's the thing that's going to keep happening, right? Market rent growth. We're talking about average rents here. You can see what happened in 2020, basically leveled. The eviction moratorium had ended. We're leveling off. People are getting back out into the world. We're returning to sort of a more normal economic cycle. And so you see, you know, some fluctuation there. Honestly, that might be kind of like a seasonality kind of flux, but basically flat from the beginning of 22. Now we're at the end of 23, right? And that really jives with 
what we've seen on our properties. Now, a few kind of caveats, because this is a national chart. So this is looking at class A, B, and C. This is looking at small properties and large properties. This is looking at properties in Maine and in Washington and in Florida and in the Sun Belt and in Texas, everywhere. National all combined, okay? What we do is we focus on really two markets, right? We're in Kentucky, we're in North Carolina for the most part. We have some smaller properties in other places. But looking at a chart like this, what I gain from this is, hey, you can't count on natural on market rent appreciation. Now, that being said, what what's the number here? We're at like 1700 bucks is right. kind of where we're at right now. It's what they're talking about, national average rents. Vinny, our portfolio, do you know what our average rent is in our portfolio? Not 1700 it's about 900, right? High 800s to 900. Oh, there. Nice. Okay. So half, less, a little more than half of, of that, right? So when you talk about national average, you know, you could say, oh, national average rent is 1700 bucks. Well, that's great. But that doesn't apply to my C-class assets in Kentucky and in North Carolina, right? So we have to be able to separate ourselves from the data while also recognizing a trend. And the trend that I see here is rents ballooned through COVID and then leveled off. And generally, I would say that is a true statement for us in our C-class assets where we are. But what we do, Vinny, as you know, is is value add. And so what this doesn't, th this is just kind of factoring all rents at all levels. But when we buy properties, we're not just buying and holding and leave, leaving it alone, right? We go in with a heavy CapEx budget. We're going to go in and we're going to fix all the safety items and we're going to re revitalize the pool and we're going to rip those old splintery playgrounds out and put in new ones. And we're going to pay for police patrols to clean up the crime. And we're going to renovate the units, of course, right? And I'm going to put new roofs on. I'm going to light the place up. And maybe I'll get a muralist out there, right? All these things go to a, our value-add strategy. And so when we're doing a value-add strategy, there's uh, a clear, you know, current as-is case of like, okay, the rents at this property are, are this number. But if I go through the work, I put the work in, I can achieve a higher level. And so what, what I'm looking at is not one number, one metric, you know, for, for that natural rent growth, I'm looking to take something that lives here that's rough and bring it up to something that's here that's better. Now, during COVID times, when we got to here, we renovated, let's say we renovated from, from this gap, it was still growing so fast, right? So, so we were like trying to keep up, we couldn't raise rents fast enough. But as long as you have that gap from where you are, putting the work in, doing the renovations, you're still gonna capture that upside. So this is not factoring that in. This is saying, uh, but by what we're doing, we're able to, to bridge the gap from like a low C or D type property up to a C plus type property. And there's a different market, different rental rental rates. So we add value through the, the targeted renovations that we do across the property. Yeah. And what I usually tell our investors and, and students is that taking that business approach, it really allows you to take ownership of the business plan and not rely on market factors like we're looking Correct. here as much. Especially when you consider the, the breadth of your wealth generation in a value add is going to come from equity growth and appreciation. Of, of the asset. So enforcing that appreciation and doing all that hard work, yeah, you're able to enjoy cash flow by increasing, you know, income, but you're also adding a lot of value that will come back to you tenfold in the back end. Right. So I might go in and put seven, eight, nine, ten thousand dollars into a unit, but I'm taking that rent from seven hundred dollars to nine hundred dollars, right? And I'm just throwing out number of examples here. But we look at that ROI and we say, is that worth it? Right. Where this really comes into play, Vinny is as we're looking at new deals, right? As we're underwriting, you know, I work very closely with our underwriting team. We're projecting out what does rent growth look like? Because in our models, okay, we're gonna take it from this number, we're gonna renovate, it's gonna go to that number, but where's it going from there? And so right now we're not modeling rent growth. Based on this data, we're not modeling future rent growth. We can't, right. we can't we're not seeing it. 
We don't know if it's going to go down. We don't know what's going to happen. We're just saying, look, market rent is going to be zero growth. We're going to come in. We're going to do that natural rent appreciation through the renovation. And then maybe five years down the road, the market will start moving up again. And that, that's how, how we're, we're planning to make money on anything, which is also making our underwriting harder. And it's also why we haven't bought a property in a while, because, you know, if I could go in and project 6% rent growth per year, then those properties would look a lot more attractive to me. But based right. on the data here, I can't, I, I'd be, I'd be not a good steward of our investors' money. It would not be a good plan to say, we're going to see the kind of rent growth we saw during COVID or even before COVID. Everyone wants to download this report. It's really great. There's a lot of really great commentary. But what I found interesting was this chart, that graph that we were just looking at in this 0.4% statistic that I was pointing out, as Justin mentioned, is that's a national average, right? And there's a much larger story. We're just looking at 30 metros here. And these are big cities. These are 30 big cities. There are many, many more cities behind all this, right? So we can get even more granular. Uh, what do you see when you look at this, Justin, between New York City being at the top and other cities like Austin that has been in the news over and over again as a great city to invest for years and years? Well, that's, that's exactly it. I, yeah. That's exactly what I was going to say to you, Benny, is, you know, how many years did we, did everyone say, you got to be in Austin? If you're not in Austin, you're missing out. Rent growth is extraordinary in Austin. Everyone wants to be in Austin. Created a bubble, right? right. And so, you know, for us, we invest in some, unfortunately, some of these areas that are on the, the lower side over here. So our portfolio in Winston-Salem is about equidistant, about an hour and a half from both Raleigh and Charlotte. And so, Thankfully, you know, Winston-Salem is not a market that's going to make this list. It's much smaller, but I can look at the data sort of around it and I can look at Raleigh and I can look at Charlotte and I can see what's happening there and how is that playing in with the tertiary market kind of situated in between the two, right? And so that's something that we look at. So if your market is not on here, but if you are, you know, you got New York and New Jersey up there, okay, well, Connecticut is probably very similar, right? Because New York, New Jersey, Connecticut kind of always go north, northeastern Pennsylvania or something or southern New York. I don't know, that whole area, that whole kind of metro you kind of loop it in. So you can look at the context clues around there and get that same kind of data. So for me, I look at the Raleigh data, I look at the Charlotte data, and, and that kind of matches up for what we're looking for. This kind of all goes back to the point of, you have to have the long-term view. We, as a company, our strategy is not to flip in and flip out because of this, because, exactly because of this. Because if you were in Austin two years ago and said, hey, we're gonna, we're gonna flip into Austin, we're gonna buy this thing, 200 units, we're gonna sell it two years later because everyone loves Austin. Well, yeah, everyone loved Austin two years ago, but now you're seeing declining rent growth, right? And so now there's a lot more risk on that because everybody opted. So we like our tertiary markets, we're stable, but the long-term view is what really helps us because this will fluctuate back and forth. And, and in a few years, New York City might be on the bottom of that list. These markets flip and flop. But in the long-term, if you're planning, not for a two-year plan, but a seven, eight, nine, 10-year plan, that gives you the flexibility to exit when the market timing is right and not be forced right. to exit in a time when Austin has just fallen off a cliff and declined. That's great, great points. And what I really, what I hope folks understand and, and Justin, what I'm hoping we can get into here too, could you explain to folks what loss to lease is? Because we're not saying to, to be careful of these markets going up and down, that's going to happen, those fluctuations. But our business plan is predicated on large loss to lease and the value add that we're providing is, close, is meant to close that loss to lease. And so you, there are times where you're able to increase income, even if market rents are going down by focusing on acquiring assets where there is a business plan where you can still increase income without relying on that market rent increasing like we do in our underwriting. Yeah, so loss to lease, I'll explain it like this. If I raise rents, if I raise market rents on a property, legally, I can't just go raise everybody's rents. I have a lease, right? So let's say I have a 12 unit property. In theory, on average, let's say one lease expires every month, just for our example's sake. So I've got one lease that expires in January, February and on. If I, in January, decide 
I'm raising rents, $100, because that's what the new market rent is. Or, uh, you know, I'm seeing rent growth. I'm in New Jersey, wherever market rent is higher. All the other comps are showing that I can do this. I'm going to raise my rent. So I'm up $100. So if I raise rents before my renewal for January, I can lease my January unit at that new higher rate. But I can't touch February, March, April, May, June, July. I can't touch those other 11 because I have leases. I have contracts with them. And so my loss to lease now is I've raised that rent $100 for all the units. I've raised what I, what the market rent is, but I won't actually be able to charge that market rent until that lease expires. So the gap between what the market is and what I'm actually charging is loss to lease. We actually always want a little bit of loss to lease because that means we're continually pushing rents. So if you look at any of our T12 statements, our financial statements for our properties, you'll see a big loss to lease, which means market rents are higher than what we're getting. And then if we're doing our job, the gap gets smaller and smaller, not because market rents are coming down, but because the actual rents, the charged rents on the property we're charging the tenants are going up, up, up. You'll see, okay, maybe we're getting closer, getting closer. And then by June, we're getting fairly close. Well, now it's time to raise rents again. So I want to see another big, big jump in loss to lease. That means I've raised my rents again. And then I'm going to spend the next few months, you know, as I'm signing new leases, bringing everyone back up to our new market rent. And so we're constantly evaluating what the market is. You know, these kind of tables are are great and good to inform us, but they're not how we're going to make our rent decisions and what we're charging in rent. Because what I'm charging for rent in my property is dictated by what everyone else in my neighborhood is charging for rent for a similar property, similar size unit, similar age, vintage, uh, amenity set, all that kind of stuff. So just the same way as like, you're trying to buy a house, you know, you're not looking at national data, you're looking at what's happening in that neighborhood. My house is worth what my neighbor's house sold for, right? If we've got the same kind of square footage and floor plan and age and all that. Same thing with rent. Right. My two bedroom unit built in 1975, renovated with white cabinets and, and granite countertops and black appliances and XYZ square footage, right? That's worth what the other property across the street, if we have a similar amenity set in a lap. So our managers are constantly calling. They're always on the phone every single week. They call all the other managers in the area and everybody does it. So it's like a, you know, it's a, it's a well-known industry thing. There's no shame in it. It's what are you charging? What are you charging? What are you charging? What, what, you know, what's, what's your rent? What's your occupancy? And so everyone is kind of in, in tune with what's happening in the marketplace. So then you'll see if one property starts pushing up, Everyone else will kind of wait and watch. Okay, are they getting it? Oh, they're starting to lease at $50 more? Cool, let me do that. Or, oh, that property just rolled out a, a water charge fee. We'll do the same thing. And everyone just kind of follows each other to make that market. But it's hyper-local, very, very tight, and really has nothing to do with this big picture data, though this is showing us the larger trend that, that these little micro interactions are happening within. Yeah, no, it, and where I was actually trying to take this to is that if, if you look at the differences between class A, B, and C assets, right? I want folks to understand that there's loss to lease really identifies the difference between market rent and what the, the asset is currently charging for rent. And in that gap is the opportunity by improving the asset and justifying increases in, in rent by providing a better product, you're able to close that loss to lease and begin to increase income. Now, Justin, to this, to this effect, what would you expect to see a class A asset have a much smaller loss to lease since they're pushing the market? They're the premium of the market. And these are new assets that are just brand new, you know, new, newly renovated. I would imagine that those lost leases are are much smaller, and that might be a, a really good point to point out why B and C class assets have this opportunity to invest in, even if there's fluctuations in market rent growth on the macro level. Yes, I mean the the newer the asset is, the more standardization there is, right? Our opportunity is in the the mess, right? And that's where where we found our niche. So. If I've got a property built in the 70s or 80s, 
it's had 30, 40, 50 years of mess. So, so one owner came in and renovated half the units. One owner came in and decided they wanted new cabinets. One owner came in and decided we're redoing all the cast iron plumbing, whatever, whatever right? They're, they're, properties are an accumulation of every previous owner's sort of vision and business plan and all that. So the newer it is, if it's only had one owner or two owners, but it was built five years ago, chances are there's not much variation, right? So it's kind of standard. We see that opportunity in, okay, let's figure out where the nicer units are and let's figure out where the nicer units are not. And can we, are there enough units that we can bring up to that next level and elevate to that next, next standard? And that's, that's, you know, where we take advantage of that loss of lease and try to drive value. Right. And so over the time you've built a lot of experience with doing all that. So I, mm -hmm. I kind of want to get into something with you. I don't always have the chance to ask. So could you tell us all your story about how you became one of the managing partners at the Rosa group, how you all met and how this opportunity came to be? Sure. Yeah. I started off investing 10 years ago now more in, in Trenton, New Jersey, bought a, got a new job and uh, was making a little bit more money and started Googling, you know, where do, where do I put this money? What should I do? Should I buy Bitcoin? Should I do this, that probably should have bought the Bitcoin, but here I am. Yeah. 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 Either way, yeah. here I am. And I, I found, you know, rental real estate, found bigger pockets and, and started going through the podcasts and went, went out and bought a rental property. And so I bought a house for a four bedroom house in New Trenton, New Jersey for $81,000. And it was my first rental. I self-managed it. I learned how to rent I bought it for 81 Vinny and the rent was 1250. Okay. Cash flow, right? But it's Trenton, New Jersey. So in theory, on paper it was cash flow, but you know, the check was lost in the mail and you know, all the problems that, that came with self-managing newbie and all that. But I needed help. So I went to the local meetups and that's where Matt was running the meetup and he was flipping houses and renting properties and all that. And, you know, we just kind of, kind of connected there. I added value in some ways. I, I volunteered at the meeting, stacking chairs, checking people in, just trying to be around the guys that were doing things that I wanted to get invited to the after meeting drink table, right? There was a table of like the dude, the speaker and like the guy running the meeting and like the people that had a lot of experience. And my goal was like, okay, how do I get invited to that meeting? Right. How do I get to sit in on that table? And so hanging out, like I said, checking people in, stacking chairs, being around, being there every time, just adding value where I could. And eventually, you know, got invited to the table and started, you know, making relationships with people, buying a few more rental properties and eventually took over the meeting. And so I was, I was then running the, the meetup. I had taken over from Matt. Matt was wanting to step down and, and build, build the business a little bit, but I had Matt come back to speak uh, a little while later. He was talking about a, a 49 unit deal he had just closed and the sort of step-by-step -step process and I'm like, man, I'm a project manager. I, I could manage these people. I could figure this out. I should be able to go buy it. If he can do it, I can do it. <laughs> I can figure this out, right? Even though I only have three single family houses, I flipped a house, I did a wholesale, not a huge real estate portfolio, but I'm like, I'm gonna go buy a 50 unit to figure this thing out. So I went and called some brokers and hopped in the car, drove down to Virginia, went to go tour a 96 unit property. And the broker's like, dude, who, who are you? You have three houses. Why Why would I show you this You know, three and a half million dollar property or whatever? And uh, good point, right? Why would you? <laughs> Who am I? I've got no experience in this kind of space. So I went back to Matt and I said, look, I'm, I got the job. I can qualify for the loan. I make decent money. I've got a network. I can raise the money, but I need, I need some experience on the team because I'm, I'm sitting here with, you know, three, three houses. So Matt, you know, who I had known for a while said, Hey, you know what? I'll come in with you. We negotiated that if I find a deal, then he gets a piece of my piece. He gave me his blessing to, to use his name and his his expert, his, his track record. And so now I was telling brokers that we, instead of had three units, had 203 units. And we looked a lot stronger, didn't we? 
So we were going to tour properties and, and buy them, even though it was me and I was doing the groundwork and I was taking the vacation days and all that. So eventually found, bought a 40 unit in Virginia, syndicated the deal, raised the money, got a manager in there. You know, Matt um, talked me off the ledge a few times and was there for to provide support and everything, uh, which is great. And then three months later, I got laid off from my job. So all this elation and excitement, and then they pulled the plug on the whole team and, and let everybody go. So I was trying to decide, should I uh, go find another job? Stable option. By the way, baby number two on the way here. So no pressure, but my wife's like, hey, you know, you got only a little bit of time here. You got to make some money. And so I was looking for a job, but she's like, you know, take, we looked at how much runway we have. She's like, take two months and see if you can go buy another apartment complex and we'll use that fee to keep us going and you'll buy another one. And so I was, that, that was kind of the plan. I was hanging around Matt's office and he was complaining about, some problems he was having in, in Fayetteville, North Carolina, on some of the properties that, that we were looking at or that, that he had. And he's complaining about, you know, getting down there and this and that. And I'm like, hey, I'll drive. I got nothing to do, right? Let me drive. You want to work in the back, work in the back. I'll drive down, chat, you know, and see if I can add value when, when we get down there. And so we got down to Fayetteville, you know, through that time, he had basically, we had figured out. So we landed the property or we get down there. Matt goes one way to deal with a, a manager issue. I go the other way to deal with the contractor stuff. The whole day, I'm like out dealing with contractors, like literally a shoebox full of receipts kind of stuff, helping him write, figure out his invoices. Like everything was a mess. Nothing was organized. This management company really didn't know what they were doing. So I was just going in really from my, my project management background, adding value, keeping getting things organized. And so they will do that. And we kind of got together at the end of the night. <clears throat> I'm like, here's all the things I did, right? Dumpster's getting empty. This contractor's good. Here's the invoices. Here's the money you owe, but he gave us credits for X, Y, and Z. I inspected these units. They're rent ready. These other ones need some some work. Like, just kind of ran through the property and and got all this stuff done. And so we kind of realized, like, Matt's superpower, finding deals, raising money, attracting a lot of attention, not so great, admittedly, about the details, about the managing of the people, and about driving the business. And so we really very quickly realized, like, let me come in, bring my project management experience, help out where I can on this one project, and we'll see what, what happens. So Matt and his other partner at the time, brought me in, we negotiated some equity in the project for me, some fees, and that became my my thing. That was uh, what I focused on. And so I would hop in the car and drive down to Fayetteville every two weeks for for a while. We started turning it around. And then by the next year, we started buying some properties out in Kentucky. And so we picked up DC9, DC10, all out in Kentucky. And so we, we started to build like a little thing that was snowballing, right? And so in the beginning, it was me getting at it. Oh yeah, we'll bring Justin on this. And then I kind of became more and more, okay, we're gonna do another one together. We're gonna do another one together. And so I started adding more value, adding more value, adding more value, just seeing where I, where I can contribute, right? Uh, and then we get into 2020, COVID, Diamond Ridge comes along in October of 2020. And by that point, we kind of really formed up. It's been a few years, this is working. We figured out our superpowers, like our multifamily superpower assessment, right? Where we're mats of the money, I'm the hammer. We had a brain on the team. We had the hunter on the team. So we started just adding, finding the right people. And we realized like we can all be stronger together. And so from there on, you know, that was it. We're partnered up and formalized things and hit the ground running. And here we are now, a few years later. I wanted people to hear that because I feel like that's that's a situation that a lot of us find ourselves in, especially getting started here that you know you have offer, you know you have skills and you're able to contribute to this business. But finding folks that have the need and with complementary skills, that's difficult, right? And so really understanding what you can contribute to the, the business will let you try to find partners that have the need for that. Guys, we have a superpower assessment. It does uh, a lot of what Justin was just describing. It, it, it's a fun little quiz. It only takes you know five minutes and it'll identify you know maybe some of your skills that you can provide to a multifamily superpower team. So five years out, could you project 
could you tell us a little bit how this model of having you know one solid team of all these superpowers going out you know doing deals what has that done for the portfolio acquisition wise you know we're talking about like there's a difference between doing deals which is me coming into that Fayetteville deal was us doing a deal together right we're filling each other out okay we're gonna get in on this project and then at some point like a, a switch flipped and it's like okay we're not individuals doing a deal we're a company we need an investor relations guy right we need marketing we need you know someone to, to onboard our investors and to handle this and that and then we need we need you know all the other things that maybe another asset manager and okay maybe we need some vas to help us with our social media and so all of a sudden instead of individuals doing deals we realized oh no, there's actually a company here and so so you know i think that a lot of people the, the first inclination is find people do deals and and i think that's a good start but we what, what we've been talking about lately and, and from our experience is you know think in the long term think for the long run is this a company we're building because it's so easy to say oh we're going to buy this deal and there's going to be acquisition fees that come in and we're going to split them up and we're all going to run our separate ways well right. who's going to run the asset who's going to talk to the investors who's going to write the updates who's going to control the capex like you can't just buy a deal and run different directions. You have to buy the deal and operate it. You're building and buying a business. When you buy a multifamily property, you're buying a business. So you need to have a plan for who's going to run that business. How are we going to run that business? What is everyone's roles and responsibilities? And so I see a lot of folks just kind of saying, oh, I want to partner up with somebody. I can bring money or whatever. It's like, no, figure out how do we have complementary skill sets, right? Me, Matt, and everybody all have complementary skill sets. We add value to this company in different ways. And so we're able then to hire out even the other gaps that we have. And so we recognize what each of us are really good at, our superpowers, right? But then we also recognize where we have some faults. I'm extremely happy that Matt can be over here raising money and, and doing all that. That's, you know, I can do some of that, but I'd much rather run my people, run my process, run my teams and and go implement the business plan and and then Hervey's over there you know pounding down doors and and working on acquisitions and it's a tough time to be in acquisitions but Hervey's the guy for it right he's got that that build that mentality for it and so together we all add value to to this thing and you know it's become this much greater entity because of it because we're all contributing to this business we're not looking at it as we're doing a deal and then going off to do something else we're doing a deal in service of building a business and building a company that will continue to live on and be bigger than the sum of the three of us and be able to employ great people and and add value to really transform lives through real estate right really so i'll hit that tagline in there but you know that's that's really what we mean right we're able to build something that serves not just us but but the everyone from the residents to the contractors to the staff members at our properties through our investors and through the people that get to work for our company as well that's great yeah it, that is something that we talk a lot about with students that we're consulting and that sort of stuff it it seems like a very common approach to find a good opportunity and then figure it out right you're going to assemble the team after you find mm -hmm. the opportunity you have different gaps and different needs for that to make that deal work but there's definitely a difference between you know having deals build the business or the business you know, project out these deals and having deals come to the business as a result of your systems and processes working, you know, so yeah, there's a machine. Yeah. Awesome. Absolutely. In that regard, you know, building businesses and that sort of stuff for folks starting out, there's a constant debate that, you know, we're always talking to people about, which is the differences between self-management, property management, and, and, you know, or hiring a third party property manager. Yeah. What it's, I know you have to give us a caveated answer here. But what what words of advice would you give for someone you know making that decision of of self management a third party or and how would that affect your decision on what type of asset you're going to go after? I I was literally having this conversation with one of our accelerator students yesterday because she is is debating the same thing right now. She's looking to scale up her portfolio. Should she self manage? Should she use a third party manager? And so, 
the the answer is you're not going to like it, but it, it highly, highly depends on things like your experience level, things like how many assets you have in the area. If you're going to buy a quadplex across the country and you've got nothing else out there, well, you probably need a third-party manager. You probably need someone that's going to be able to be eyes and ears and on the ground for you. If you're buying a quadplex in your town or the next town over and you've got 30 other units in that town, it probably makes sense to self-manage because you're, you've probably got those systems and processes and contractors and you know, you know the market and you know the area. So there's a lot of gray area in between that. Well, my situation is kind of different, but at the end of the day, it's how are you being most effective with your time, energy, and money? So, you know, if, if we're going to go buy another apartment complex, you know, Benny, Matt for years said, we should self-manage really since those Fayetteville days, you know, we were struggling with the managers, like we should self-manage, we should self-manage. And my answer was always for the longest time, like, what do we know about how, 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 how arrogant of us is it to presume that we will be better managers than this third party company that you know has all this experience and it wasn't until we hit a tipping point in scale in market knowledge in contracted relationships that we really felt like okay we can do this now we have the right team we have the right people that we can plug in here and it makes economic sense and so now we're moving over to self-management for us for our company because that's what works for us right now but for the last five years that did not work for us that was not the right thing for us to do so every person's situation is going to be fairly different I'm a big fan of if you've got a small property, single family, small duplex, and you can self-manage it, I'm a fan of that. I told you with my $80,000 house in Trenton, I went through the ringer, right? And I had every story told to me and every excuse and every problem and a $100,000 insurance issue that came up with. Like I went through the ringer on that property, okay? But I self-managed and I learned hands-on. And so I got that kind of baseline experience. And, And look, Managing a four bedroom house in Trenton, New Jersey is not the same as managing a 300 unit in North Carolina. I want to be very clear, but at least grounded me and gave me the context of what some of our managers are going through and gave me some relatability and and understanding empathy for, for how they're going about their day. And what I've realized the more we do this is that the success of our portfolio is incredibly dependent on the success of the people in our offices, the people in the maintenance team that are going into the units and interacting with the staff, the people that are collecting rent and doing the follow-up. These people work incredibly hard for us on our properties. And so it's really important for me as an owner to be able to recognize and, and all their contributions. So when I go to a property, you know, I'm bringing gifts or donuts or treats or something and just very appreciative of like all the hard work and just being able to speak to them about sort of that shared context. I'm like, man, I'm so grateful that you are doing it so that I don't have to do it, but I recognize and appreciate everything you're going through. So I always think that if you can, if you can swing it on the smaller side, it makes sense, especially you're going to want to save some money out of a management fee. But that, you know, look, if you're a dentist and you love being a dentist and you want to pick up a few single family properties on the side, yeah, you probably want a management company, right? So it all depends. Are you trying to build the thing? Are you trying to just invest passively? It was a really long and convoluted answer to your very short question, Vinny. I, I, no, that's great. It needs to be though, because it's, it's a simple question, but it's not a simple, you know, thought yeah. actually. So what I heard though is, is really two kind of through lines is recognize your your roles and responsibilities and your skill sets. Do you have the ability to and do it well, right? Because you're we're, we're talking about serious business here. So do you have the, the ability to, to do that management? And then also one thing I pick up is is what type of asset do you want to invest in proximity to your other assets and that sort of thing. There's a certain economies of scale that makes this a, an effective business strategy or model. So we, we need to not only take into account the individual, the person and, and what you want to do, but also the type of asset you want to take down and, 
and where you want to take it down. So I'll tell you for, for me, that's one of the reasons we got connected and why I got interested in multifamily. One of the reasons I think it's so great is because frankly, I didn't want to do everything right. And when you resort yourself to not wanting to do everything, you need to do bigger deals and create a bigger slice of the pie. So to facilitate these types of partnerships. And that's why I got interested in large multifamily because actually I wasn't interested in at all in the asset management side of it. I didn't want to, have to think about it. So when you start thinking about along those lines, well, how large does the deal need to be to justify either an asset management uh, partner who's going to do that or a third party property manager? And that will kind of, you know, facilitate what type of deal you're looking for and, and where as well. So, yeah, absolutely. And so we found, you know, with the hunter brain money hammer kind of ethos there, you know, if you're a money guy and you want to just be doing money and interacting with people, great. You got to find people that can, can help you out with, with the other things, right? Maybe you're two of them, but you need help with the other two, right. you know. When I did my 40 unit mini, I was all four, right? Yeah. And very, very quickly realized I'm not an underwriter. I'm not a brain, you know, and I struggled with the capital raise, you know, and I really picked a market of like, it was it was eight hours away from my house. It was driving distance and I could get there with one vacation day from my work. So it was like, I literally drew a circle on the map, like anywhere within here is going to be fine because I can get there, right? So it wasn't the best, you know, I probably, I wouldn't do it quite the same now, but I recognize that there's other people that have better skill sets than that, than me in those areas. And I can focus on what I'm good at and I can, and I can contribute more with, with what my superpower is, but evaluating yourself can be hard. A lot of people think they have to do everything. A lot of people think they are good at everything. And you know, you really have to reflect and, and think about maybe you are, maybe you can do everything. I, I can, I got it done. Right. I bought a property. I got us there, but I really think a, a lot about, you know, sort of like a Venn diagram with three, three circles, meaning, it's like, what are you great at doing, right? I was a great project manager, I'll say. I'll, I'll pat myself on the back. Very good at like IT, software project management. I was good. The second circle is like, what pays you? Well, my job paid me, right? So I had a great overlap between I was good at it and the job paid me. I was paying my bills. But the third circle is, what do you love, right? And so if you can get the intersection between all three, I wasn't happy. I didn't love software. I'm boring, boring, right? But same thing with multifamily. I didn't love the underwriting. I didn't love the capital raising. Let me push those off. I love the asset management. I'm good at it and it pays, right? So I found this thing that works for my life, for my situation. And so that's what I want everyone to kind of think about combining what they're great at doing, what they love doing, are they going to get rewarded out of, or that feeling of, of, you know, a win at the end of the day. And then how do we pay our bills at the end of the day as well? And so if you can find an intersection between all three of those things, then you're going to do well in life. Awesome. How's that? that that's yeah, we got, we got, we pushed the envelope of real estate education here and that's personal development. So that's great. I love it. And you know, it's true too, that you have to think about not, not you should do that over the years as well, right? There are, you should recognize the phases of life that you're in awesome, mm -hmm. right? Cause there are certain things that we want to do at certain points, you know, or willing to do at certain points that you, you might not be willing to at, at different points of your life. Right. And so that's important to recognize too. And your skill sets will change over time. So it's always marrying those two. You absolutely. Know. You're absolutely right. You could, you could be thinking of the bigger picture and say, Hey, I got to go get this job so I can get these skills so I can get to, to where I want to go. And that's still in service of that greater goal, but getting, getting aligned with what you want out of life will really help you build that. Awesome. Well, thanks, Justin. Justin, I'm going to get into it with our asset management tip of the month with Tara. Okay. group and creator of T Talks Multifamily. Asset management tip of the day. 
it's easy in asset management to see a property as just a streaming list of income and expenses and liabilities and potential headaches and nightmares, right? But don't forget that your asset is a series of homes, however many units you have. One of the most often forgotten aspects of asset management is ensuring that you're doing something to keep your residents engaged, keep them happy, keep them willing to talk to you, keep them willing to tell their friends, their coworkers, their family about this awesome place that they live. One of the things that we did in the past week in light of the Thanksgiving holiday is that we took our biggest property in Winston-Salem. What could our residents benefit from? A resident demographic where the majority of it is workforce housing. Why not give away some Thanksgiving dinners? And so that's what we did. For every single staff member that we have on the site, we want that staff member to draw a random resident name. We delivered full Thanksgiving dinners, and I'm talking the real deal. The turkey, all the trimmings, the pie, not one of those little ones. We're talking the big Costco pie here, so okay? I had residents that were in tears. I had staff members that were in tears. And it did such a great job of truly extending that essence of goodwill to those residents. It demonstrated that we care. It demonstrated that we're giving back. It demonstrated to them that we want to be here and we're glad that they're here too. Those type of events doesn't have to be huge, extravagant, and expensive, but it does need to fit the message that you're trying to convey to your residents, and it does need to fit your resident need base as well. Those are the things that will make it the most successful. See the ripple effect of what that type of rapport building and opening that line of communication will yield for you. So in our case, within two hours, we had a five-star Google review. That means that a resident was so excited about this event that they took time out of their own day to go online. They get no benefit from this other than to brag about how happy they were with the experience with us. We benefit from that. Our future residents benefit from that, which means in turn that we benefit from that again. See your resident engagement factor as an opportunity to increase your income, because it really is. It is the strongest marketing factor any asset manager has in their back pocket, if done correctly. And so that's my tip of the day. Have a great one. I look forward to talking to you guys soon. See ya. How amazing is Tara? I mean, <laughs> I, love, I don't know. She was probably playing the guitar too. I love the music, by the way. <laughs> look, yeah. That when we talk about transforming lives through real estate, that's not just words on the bottom of the screen down there. It's not just, you know, we register the trademark or whatever. Making a difference for, you know, a handful of residents it costs us it, next to nothing, right? It's a drop in the bucket for what it costs the property, right? It's it's actually not even coming out of my prop my pocket or Vinny's pocket. It's coming out of the property, but you know, we're trying to be good stewards. We're good stewards of, of our investors, of the property. But this is a great thing that that builds goodwill helps people in a time of need, helps people that might be struggling right now, you know, trying to buy some gifts or whatever it else might be. So um, I'm so glad that that Tara had that idea and wanted to go go run out and do that to, for our staff members, for our property there. And and it just, it makes a big difference. And so that really means a lot to me. I'm glad that she captured a video about it. You know, I love too, how she really highlighted in there the opportunity to affect the people that you work with every day as well. You know, so it's, it's of course, this extends to our residents and, and that sort of stuff but also to the people we work with, you know, towards this mission. And so, you know, part, can you speak to a little bit about, you know, being an employer and, and just the obligation of being a good employer? And I, I imagine it must feel good to provide that opportunity for people to, to make a living, but also, you know, feel good about where they are in life, you know? 
Yeah, I mean, it just starts with people. You know, what, what I mentioned before about having the empathy for the job that these folks are doing, property management is got to be one of the one of the hardest jobs, right? It's right up there, but it's thankless, right? Who comes into the office? People that are either paying their rent or they're mad about something, right? Not a great, you know, situation there. When is a maintenance person going into a unit? Well, when something's broken. So probably someone's mad about that too, right? So, so often it's just a thankless job. So I try to do our best to, to recognize and appreciate our staff. We do all kinds of, you know, staff recognition events and we let them pick, right? Last year, the team at that property uh, wanted to go to, to Dave and Buster's. So we got them each, you know, a couple hundred dollar gift card each. And they all went out and, and played Dave and Buster's all night long, right? Other properties just want to go out to a dinner or something. So we try to, to give back. We try to recognize through appreciation. And it could be like we have an email thread with, with our managers in Kentucky. And every time they sign in a new lease, they just hit the email thread and say, hey, just sign another lease. And, and everyone writes back, congrats. That's awesome. Right. And sometimes we see that multiple times a day. And it's just a little bit of like, you know, hey, great job. Right. Just a little recognition for, for the work, because uh, we know that if our employees are motivated, if they love what they do, if they see that we're doing the right thing and not cutting corners, then they recognize that they're providing a great place for people to live as well. And they want to be part of that. Right. And there are these intangibles that just make the culture so much better. And, it, you know, it's so important in a business like this to feel good about what you're doing. So, Justin, I'll ask you this kind of lighter question. What is the increase in rent you're able to get by adding a dog washing station? I loved your answer to this in our in one of our board of directors meetings. Did I say zero dollars? So at this property, we had two big like restrooms, like one for men, one for women. They were both kind of big with like multiple stalls and everything. Yeah. The only people using it really is the office staff. Um, but it's in a common area that, that anyone can kind of walk into the office. And so the one of the, the restrooms went down with like heavy plumbing issues, like the pipes all burst and it was a catastrophe, right? So we we basically had to gut gut the whole thing. Like, okay, do we build back another bathroom or can we take the one that's over there, make that just a all gender, like the door type single person bathroom, which really is all the property needs and take this empty space. And instead of rebuilding it back as a basically on, you know, bathroom that's not going to be used, let's turn it into something for, for the residents. And so we, we already had the plumbing, we already had the drainage because it was a bathroom and we turned it into a pet spa. And so we, we tiled it all up real nice. We got the dog washing station and the, the little shampoos and the big dryer, and, you know, a bunch of decals on the walls. And yeah, I can't necessarily go charge an extra $10 or $20 for all my residents and say, well, we have a pet station now. But what it does is make things sticky, makes people that do have pets, they're going to want to stay longer. We have a dog park there. So this kind of goes hand in hand with that. We say we're pet friendly. Well, yeah, here. So so someone walks in, maybe maybe our units rent a little bit faster. Maybe we attract more pet owners. And by the way, responsible pet owner, we get a non-refundable fee and we get pet rent. So we love having pets on our properties because we actually make a little bit more money as well. So so all those things kind of contribute. But at the end of the day, it's not like saying, I'm going to spend X dollars on this pet spa and get this very clearly defined return on investment. But it all contributes to the community and contributes to the the overall experience that that our residents have. And uh, if it makes them have a better place to live, then we're generally going to do it. Awesome. I, I don't want to I don't want to undercut the importance of just creating a good culture and a good place to work because it's the right thing to do. It is. But these sort of things do have a habit of coming back to you on the other side of the business as well, and you know profitability and that sort of stuff. So you know the answer I'd give to what how much can you increase rent by adding a pet station is I don't know, but. But right. it does, you know, it does come back and, you know, whether, whether residents stay longer or are more likely to sign a lease because of it, you know, it, it will come back, even though it's hard to outline exactly how. It, it could be that they want to renew quicker that, okay, they're going to take that rent bump because now they've got, you know, we're raising market rent anyway, but instead of going in the office and complaining about it, 
they're like, okay, yeah, they're continuing to improve the property. It's when you don't give anything back and you're like, I'm just going to come in and raise all the rents. That's when people get upset and they leave. And then it, you know, turnover is very, very expensive as we all know. But then there's other benefits like our staff staying longer and then we don't have to retrain new staff and have staff turnover and all that. So it's hard to uh, quantify, but there's a, a million ways that, that adding something like that contributes to, to our communities. Well, thank you, Justin. So I appreciate you spending some time with me on your Friday and everything like that. And everyone listening, whether you're on Spotify or here with us live asking questions, we appreciate you too. I think we covered a lot of really good stuff. Asset management takeover. We talked a little bit about rent, rent growth across the nation and, and what that means at the, at the macro level, but also the micro level and how you might affect your, your business planning strategies. We got into to talking about superpowers and how you might fit into a multifamily team and how you can make, maybe make this exit into a full-time career in, in uh, real estate. So really exciting stuff there. And finally, a great asset management tip by Tara. So folks, we spent a lot of time talking about skills and, and how you could fit in these teams. If you want to learn more about where you might fit into a real estate team, head to derosagroup.com forward slash superpowers to, to find to take the superpower assessment test and also find out where you might fit in. But if you're looking to take a way deeper dive and really a consultation, head to derosagroup.com forward slash accelerator. We do have a program out there and we're really happy to dive into your business and help implement these systems and processes for you. So thank you everyone for listening and I hope you have a great week. Take Thanks care. Thanks for having me, Hey guys, Matt Faircloth here. Thank you for listening again to the Cashflow Digest. I really appreciate you guys doing that. If you guys want to hear more about what DeRosa Group has to offer, go to DeRosa Group, D-E-R-O-S-A group.com, DeRosa Group.com online. You can hear about all the great things that we offer from an educational standpoint and passive investment standpoint on our website. See you there. And if you guys want to join our online community, DeRosa Insiders on Facebook, where you can watch this program get recorded every Friday at noon Eastern, and you can come on as even a guest or ask questions on the show. We hope to see you guys on our online community, DeRosa Insiders. See you there.